Hello, everybody, and welcome once again. You are listening to BibleStudyPodcasts.org. Today is Wednesday, August the 22nd of 2012, and I'm your host, as always, Toby Logsdon. Thank you guys so much for being here today, for downloading this message and joining us for our final lesson. Man, it sounds weird to say that. Our final lesson in the book of Romans. Um, I'm excited to do this, but at the same time, I'm nervous, I'm sad, I'm happy. Uh, all kinds of stuff, all kinds of feelings going through me as we uh, as we get ready to wrap this study up. Uh, you know, we started it in February of 2007. It's been a long road, but I think it's been a fruitful road. I really do. I believe that... Um, Man, I have seen a lot of changes in my own life as I've gone through this study. Hopefully you've seen the same in your life. I know that a lot of you um, are, are way behind. You know, you're, you're nowhere near where we are right now. You're not up to date. There are a lot of people doing catch-up, basically, um, in our lessons, which is totally cool uh, because the podcasts are going to be up and available um, for years to come, as as long as uh, you know, as we can keep the server going, uh, and as long as the podcasts keep going, these lessons will be up there for uh, for everyone to uh, to listen to, and hopefully to learn from and and grow through. Um, anyway, you know, I don't want to get bogged down by a bunch of announcements up front or anything, other than to welcome you guys. Um, if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 16. Uh, we're going to start with verse 21, and we're going to take it to the end. So we'll get started with that here uh, as soon as we open with a quick word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you just for who you are. We love you. We worship you. Thank you for being a God who loves us as much as you do. Thank you for your grace. We know, Lord, that it is always sufficient. And I pray, Lord, that as we begin this final lesson in the book of Romans, that you'll set our hearts straight, get our focus on you, and use this time, Lord, to draw us closer to you. Transform us through your word as we study it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you know, as I um, as I sat down to prepare this 211th, uh, yeah, that's a lot of lessons, 211th and final lesson on the book of Romans. Like I said, you know, I found myself to be full of just a, a wide variety of emotions. I rejoice on one hand to have completed this study, you know, of this book, and it is easily the most intense and the largest theological study or undertaking that I have ever ever had or ever taken on. In fact, you know, if I would have known that this would take 211 lessons and five and a half years to get through this study, maybe I would have turned it down at the beginning uh, and found a different book to study. You know, I don't know. But what I found through this study is that the deeper I dug, the more I found. And hence, we've got 211 lessons, five and a half years worth of lessons. And believe it or not, I'm actually sure that I could have done more if I had wanted to, but I wanted to keep us moving along uh, in, a, in a forward direction rather than dwelling on uh, maybe some minor issues. But definitely could have gotten uh, many more than 211 lessons out of this. I know that there are people who have preached this for much longer than five and a half years, believe it or not. 
I'm also somewhat sad to conclude this book because it's been such a joyous study for me. And hopefully it has been for you as well. But I know that as I have gone through this study, this this book, it's stretched me, it's grown me and challenged me in ways that I never could have possibly foreseen. God's Word has a way of transforming us when it challenges us. And I can look back over the past five and a half years and see how different I am as a person because of the transformation that I've experienced as a result of this study. And again, hopefully it's been the same for you as well. But I know that the sadness that I feel in ending this study is going to be replaced by joyfulness, um, you know, based on whatever study I commit myself to in the future. There's joy in discovering God's Word and digging into God's Word. And I know um, that any sadness I feel is going to be replaced by that joyfulness. I'm also, uh, you know, maybe a little bit overwhelmed by both a sense of anxiety and peacefulness as we conclude this study, knowing that I have consistently tried to put forth my best effort uh, through this study. You know, in the times when I didn't feel as though I could give 100% to the study, I would wait and do the lesson later. The anxiety comes from, you know, this little voice in my ear that keeps saying, what are we going to do next? And is it going to be as long and as big as this study? You know, I don't know. But immediately that anxiety is put to rest because I know, I know that God's grace is always sufficient. And that's what's taken me thus far. You know, that's that's how I've gotten through five and a half years of doing this. It's God's grace, and it's what's going to carry me through any future studies as well as life itself. You know, there's nothing that Paul has forgotten to include in this letter. And as it has winded down, you know, I've had the sense that he was pausing and reflecting upon what was already written. You know, he's talked about the fall of humanity, how we turned away from God, and thus he turned humanity over to our sins. He made his existence obvious enough that anyone can see it, but discreet enough that anyone who wants to ignore his existence is free to do so. Nevertheless, people have this moral code in their heart a longing to do what's right. You might call it a conscience. And many have responded with a man-centered salvation in which rites and rituals are believed to earn us grace and salvation. But then Paul went on to tell us that that wasn't enough, that nobody, nobody is good because all have fallen short of God's glory. You know, God could have given us what we deserve, death and permanent separation from him, but instead he loved us enough that he sent his son to bear his wrath on our behalf, in order that whoever puts their trust for salvation in his Son, Jesus Christ, would become united with him in God's eyes and thereby declared innocent. From there, Paul went on to tell us that God has a plan, a plan which includes us as his heirs, a plan which is unfathomable, unbreakable, and unshakable. And thus we can know that everything that we go through is something that God has either allowed in our lives or caused for our betterment. Everything, everything is working for the good of those who love him. And we can trust in that. And Paul illustrates this whole principle, everything that he discusses in Romans chapters 1 through 8. He illustrates it by discussing the history and God's future plans for Israel. And it's with that in mind that Paul turned his attention to living as a Christian, stressing the need for community, the need for fellowship, honoring one another, and trusting in the sufficiency of God's grace in all things on a day-by-day basis 
basis. And this is really the gist of the book of Romans. And as Paul concludes this book, we have to remember that all Scripture is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. That's Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. And this passage that we're at today here in our book of Romans, our study of Romans, this passage is no different. We're about to enter a passage that some theologians over the past couple hundred years or so have argued doesn't even belong in Scripture because it seems so intimate. It seems personal and maybe even useless to the reader in today's world. That's the argument anyway. But you know what? I'm just going to stick with 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 on this one, because all Scripture is breathed out by God, and all Scripture is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, and this is no different. Well, having just instructed his audience in dealing with people who provoke dissension and division in the church, Paul's going to give us something of an implied contrast as he continues by writing in Romans chapter 16, verses 21 to 23. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you, and so do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who write this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, greets you, and Quartus, the brother. When people think of Paul, you know, it's, I think it's very common for people to view him as something of a loner. And of course, When we carefully study his letters, we know that he does end up to be something of a loner in the long run, but that's only because he gets taken into captivity when he returns to Jerusalem after writing this specific letter and refusing in sinful disobedience to leave the city of Jerusalem when the Lord Jesus specifically has told him to do so. But we know based on what Paul ends up writing in other letters that many, including the majority of the church in Rome, abandoned him when he was taken into captivity. Nevertheless, while it's easy for us to characterize Paul as being independent and a loner and you know being stubborn about doing things his own way and so stubborn sometimes that he runs people off like he did with John Mark and Barnabas. The truth is that Paul never wanted to be a loner, and he didn't want to be independent. He didn't want to be on his own. He had no desire to be a rogue or lone ranger evangelist. To the contrary, he sought accountability and typically traveled and teamed up with other followers of Jesus who were committed to spreading the good news of Jesus to the nations. What we see here is that Paul took discipleship and accountability very very seriously. He lived it out. We find here that Paul had at least, at least five fully committed missionaries and ministers in training who were with him in the city of Corinth, which is where this letter was written, by the way. And that's a picture of the way that God designed discipleship. That's the way that God designed the church to work. I had a really wise seminary professor, Dr. Barry Leventhal, who once told me that if the church was truly doing its job, every seminary in the country would be out of business. And I couldn't agree more. This was a concept that Paul was committed to time and time again throughout his career as a missionary. When circumstances forced him to leave town ahead of his, uh, his group or his entourage of fellow missionaries, Paul would always wait for them before proceeding. For example, look at Acts chapter 17, verse 16. And when he finally was left all alone in his imprisonment to the Roman authorities, he desperately longed for companionship again. 
you know, there's much that we can all learn from what we see here. And one of the first things that God says about man in the Bible is that it's not good that a man be alone. That's from Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. I'm not saying that we should become codependent to the point that it's not healthy. And, you know, maybe we, we hate the idea or we fear the idea of being without the other person or, or group of persons. But our desire should never be to operate independently of other followers of Jesus or to overlook the importance of real life, hands-on discipleship, which is exactly what Paul is obviously doing. He's living that out. Collaborate and work together with other people. Hold yourself accountable to them because that's the way that God designed us to work. We're like a body with each part having a separate function, working together with other parts of the body to do more than we could if we operated independently of one another. You know, part of the reason that Paul's ministry was so big, so successful, was because he was always willing to allow someone else the opportunity to use or to develop their giftedness in coordination with Paul's ministry and gifting. So by listing these disciples and co-workers, Paul's giving us a picture of a team that had no division. It's no coincidence that this falls right on the heels of a warning about those who seek to create strife and division. So first, Paul mentions Timothy. We know quite a bit about Timothy, actually. We know that Timothy was one of Paul's favorite disciples, if not his favorite. Paul first met Timothy on his first missionary trip while he was ministering in the towns of Lystra and Derbe. That's from Acts chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. And part of the reason that Paul had such a a fatherly love for Timothy probably had a lot to do with the fact that Timothy's father apparently didn't have a lot to do with teaching Timothy the scriptures. Rather, it was Timothy's mother and grandmother that had educated him in the scriptures. And that's not to say that they didn't teach him well, but Timothy was obviously ready to advance to the next level. And that's the opportunity that Paul offered him. But we also know that Paul was from Tarsus, which wasn't far from Lystra and Derby. Culturally, then, I imagine that Paul and Timothy had quite a bit in common. Timothy would go on to become one of Paul's most trusted and beloved co-laborers for the gospel, and it's likely for that reason that Timothy is given the honor of being the first co-worker named here. Next, Paul goes on to list three other men who are working alongside him and Timothy. Lucius was a man from the region of Cyrene who had helped to lead the church in Antioch as one of the prophets and teachers. Uh, That's what we read in Acts chapter 13 verse 1. Jason uh, was a follower of Jesus from Thessalonica where he'd helped Paul establish the Thessalonian church. Uh, We know that it was Jason's house that was ransacked when the Jews formed a mob that sought to find Paul, and that Jason was arrested when Paul couldn't be found. This is what we read in Acts chapter 17, verses 5 to 10. So obviously, Paul's bravery and his dedication, his sold-out commitment to the gospel, made a huge impact on Jason, and Jason ended up joining Paul's ministry in the city of Corinth. Third here, Paul lists Sosipater. And this is probably not his birth name, but like Barnabas, he had received this name because of something he had done or some characteristic that he had. The name Sosipater literally means saves his father. Uh, We don't know 
exactly what happened with his father. But if Sosipater is the same person as Sopater from Acts chapter 20, verse 4, and it's possible that that's the same person, then we know that he's from Berea, and his father's name is Pyrrhus. And it's likely that at some point he saved the life of his father, and so the name stuck. Now, the details may have escaped historical record, but the guy's name hasn't. So Paul refers to these four men, Timothy, Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater, as his kinsmen. These people are called his kinsmen, which is a name that Paul used, a designation that Paul used for his fellow Jews. Now, fifth, Paul allows a co-worker named Tertius to include his own greeting. And it seems probable, it seems very probable, that Tertius was a Gentile, being that he wasn't listed as a kinsman of Paul's. It was common for Paul to have an assistant write out the letter while Paul dictated it out loud. And this is actually a very interesting practice, because by doing that, it allowed those who were in the vicinity to hear exactly what was being written, what was being dictated. Nothing was private, as far as Paul was concerned, because he didn't have anything to hide from anyone. The common practice was that the person writing the dictation out would periodically hand the letter over to the person dictating it for review, and once it was approved, the dictation would continue. But even though Paul wrote several of his letters in this manner, we know that he commonly would add his own personal touch near the end of these letters, in accordance with the Holy Spirit's leading, of course. In Paul's case, we know that it wasn't easy for him to write for some reason or another. When he wrote to the Galatians, though, we know that he he did write it out himself in distinctly large letters. That's from Galatians chapter 6, verse 11. And the implication seemed to be that the reason that he was doing so was because he was upset that his teachings among them had been followed by the teachings of the Judaizers. And so that was one letter that Paul wrote by himself, and he lets it be known, hey, I am the one writing this, as you can see. Now, just because Paul's letters were often dictated, by the way, doesn't change the fact that the authorship is his, because the words and the thoughts are 100% Paul's. He reviewed the letter once it was dictated, once it was recorded, written down, and put his own name on it to show his approval. Tertius is actually a really interesting name, by the way, because while he's fifth uh, listed, he's the fifth person listed here, his name literally means third. But actually, that was a common name for a slave back in the first century. He wasn't a slave of Paul's. Rather, he was likely the slave of someone who was part of the church in Corinth. But Paul knew and ministered to many slaves, and he wasn't afraid to allow those men to use their giftings in accordance and in coordination with Paul's ministry. Onesimus from the book of Philemon is another example. So we might paraphrase this verse, verse 22, as saying, I, third, the slave who has been set free in Christ Jesus, greet you in the Lord. Paul then goes on to send greetings to the church in Rome from Gaius, whom Paul personally baptized, which we learn in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 14, Erastus, who was the public treasurer of the city of Corinth, apparently, and Quartus, whose name means fourth, pretty interesting, and is thus, uh, by the way, also most likely a slave. So apparently, Paul had no fewer than eight men ministering alongside him in the city of Corinth. Now, if you look at the next verse, you'll see that your Bible probably has it italicized, or maybe it has it written in brackets. Uh, Romans chapter 16, verse 24 says, in brackets, 
The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Now, the reason that it's bracketed or italicized is because none of the the oldest copies of this letter to the Romans included these words. And so, therefore, they are very likely not part of the original letter, but they were added at a later date. Finally, Paul concludes this letter with a final benediction, writing in Romans chapter 16, verses 25 to 27. Now, to him who is able to establish you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested, and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, leading to obedience of faith, to the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be the glory forever. Amen. In closing this letter, Paul sets aside the arguments, the discussions, the explanations, the needs of his Roman audience, everything else, and he turns his full and undivided attention to the glory of God. And these three verses are actually somewhat difficult to understand because they consist of several compound phrases which, when put together, form one very, very long sentence. So Paul begins this benediction with the words, Now to him who is able to establish you. The word establish means to strengthen or to solidify one's position. And if there's one thing that Paul has learned, and by the way, one thing that I have learned as well, God is the one and only true source of strength in the life of the follower of Jesus. It's his work that strengthens us, and it's the Holy Spirit's work that transforms our lives, making us progressively more and more Christ-like, more and more like Jesus in our character, teaching us obedience and devotion. That's his work. You know, I can teach you or your pastor can teach you, but we can't establish you. We can't strengthen you. No person can. It's God's work alone. So in what way are we strengthened? Well, first Paul says, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. See, when God strengthens us, it's in accordance with the gospel, with the good news. And I love the fact that Paul says, according to my gospel. That is so awesome. And it's not that Paul uh, was the good news. It's not saying that the good news is about him or has anything to do with him. Rather, instead of claiming authorship of the gospel, he's claiming ownership of it. We all should. He lived it out. It wasn't just some abstract theory or principle. It was tangible. It was verifiable. It was observable in Paul's life because it had changed the course of his life, just as it'll change the course of anyone's life if they'll believe the gospel message. Jesus died to make us his own. We are positionally different different in our position to God. We are positionally different than we were before because the good news of the gospel is that God's mercy is so great that whosoever believes in Jesus will be an adopted son or daughter of the king. That is something that we want to claim ownership of. Claim ownership of it. Live it out. Make it a part of who we are, how we function, how we think, how we see the world. And I love that that's what Paul does here. Secondly, we'll be strengthened according to the revelation of the mystery, which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested. Now, 
Keep in mind that the biblical concept of mystery doesn't mean, uh, you know, something that must be figured out. If we put all the right pieces together, we'll figure it out. Rather, it's a secret that's finally revealed. It has nothing to do with something that defies reason or something mystical or anything like that. See, God gave his people hints throughout the Old Testament, but they were somewhat obscure until they were all seen in retrospect. You know, Israel should have known, they should have seen that God meant it when he promised to Abraham, in you, in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. In you, Abraham, all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. That's from Genesis chapter 18, verse 18, and Genesis chapter 22, verse 18. Well, how was that all going to work? Well, in retrospect, it should have been apparent that God planned on bringing the Gentiles in because even though, even though the men of Israel were instructed not to marry women of Gentile nations, if you look at it, there's not one Jewish woman in the entire lineage of Christ. Not one Jewish woman is in there. Is that wild? In all of Jesus' ancestry, not a single daughter of Israel is listed among his grandmothers, and not a single one of the men listed married a Jewish woman. God's sovereign providence undoubtedly guided this genealogy, but why? Why did he do it this way? Obviously, in retrospect, we see that it's because God's plans were for all the nations to be blessed through Abraham. This was all an undisclosed secret before, but now it was revealed to the world. What revealed it? Paul writes that it was manifested by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God has been made known to all the nations. So God's own word revealed it. It started in the Garden of Eden with God's promise to send a Redeemer. And now we can look back at the scriptures as recorded by the prophets and understand with clarity how exciting it must have been for Paul to be alive when this mystery, the secret that God had kept under wraps for so long, was finally revealed and made known throughout the world. How exciting that he would be a part of that. Maybe that helps us understand why Paul was so committed to his ministry to the Gentiles. Next, Paul tells us the result of this secret being revealed to the nations, leading to the obedience of faith. Paul started this letter off by telling us that the just or the righteous shall live by faith. That's Romans chapter 1 verse 17. And saving faith is demonstrated most clearly in our obedience. Faith that isn't accompanied by progressively increasing obedience to God isn't saving faith. What started out as a secret turned out to be the means by which obedience of faith spread among the nations. Finally, Paul writes, To the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be the glory forever. You know, it might be easier to read all this if you cut the middle portion out so you see it as, to him who is able to establish you, be the glory forever. It's all God's. It all belongs to him. He's the king of glory, which means all of it belongs to him. It's proclaimed and declared in nature, and you and I are invited to join with all of creation in declaring his glory as well. All meaningful purpose of our existence is found in him. He created it all, he holds it all together, and it all rightfully belongs to him. 
As the Westminster Catechism says, our purpose is to glorify God and to fully enjoy Him forever. Why is that even possible? Because of Jesus. If He's won your heart and your life with His love, you're His. You're in Him and He's in you. And His glory will be revealed through you and needs to be declared, proclaimed by you. And in closing, the only fitting way to end this is to join Paul in declaring, Amen. Father, we thank you for who you are. Thank you for being a God who transforms us through your word, through the power of your Holy Spirit. God, we thank you that your grace is always sufficient. God, all the glory is yours. It is all yours. And I pray, Lord, that that would be the lens through which we see the whole world, everything in the world. Lord, may it all be for your glory. Everything that we are, everything that we do, everything that we're about, God, teach us to live for your glory. Lord, I pray that you would surround us with people who can hold us accountable to you, with people who can teach us about you based on their giftedness. God, surround us with people whose gifts complement ours in order that we can make your name known. Teach us, Lord, to declare your glory, not only with our lives, the way that we live, but also with our lips. Teach us to be wise. Teach us to be discerning. Teach us to be gentle and loving the way that you have been gentle and loving with us. Father, the glory is all yours. Thank you for this study, and I pray that you'll continue working in us in studies to come. In Jesus' name, amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Time after time You gave